Navalny, of course, and more, though, because this is one of those episodes in which my esteemed patrons ask me questions and I, their humble servant, seek to answer. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. So as I said, this is going to be an episode in which I respond to a series of questions that uh, my various patrons have sent to me, although I will try to assemble them to create some kind of at least faintly logical order. And the first one is, well, what else could it be but Navalny? And in particular, I was asked the question, why is the Kremlin so afraid of Navalny? But another way, why do they regard him as dangerous? After all, we clearly do see not just a campaign against Navalny, but a wholesale shift in policy as a result. You know, we have Navalny in prison, and no doubt with more charges to be levelled against him. More to the point, we have the campaign against his national political network and his foundation against corruption moving from, shall we say, the bespoke attacks on different individuals and regional leaderships and into something much more comprehensive, with them being labelled as extremist organisations, as if they were terrorist groupies or whatever. So, you know, even just giving them some small donation or retweeting a notice or otherwise getting involved can basically get you caught. And beyond that, we've seen new campaign against, for example, the independent media. Medusa, the thoroughly excellent uh, Latvian-based outlet, is now labelled as a foreign agent, which has massive implications, not least for their funding. We have um, arrest, or sorry, detention rather, um, of a key figure from the investigative outfit iStories. And, you know, clearly the presence of investigative journalists who've been doing so, so much groundbreaking work um, in bringing to light things that the Kremlin and certainly the, the intelligence services do not want brought to light. I mean, that's become an irritant. And, and so the list goes on. So this is, this is something big. So why? What is it about Navalny? Well, first of all, there is this point that I think, and I believe this is probably explains why they moved after having tolerated him, sort of, kind of, roughly, for so long why the authorities actually decided in the end of last year to, to poison him and to try and kill him. And that is that they came to believe their own uh, narrative, their own propaganda, that he was not just simply a domestic oppositionist, but that he was an instrument of Western Gibritnaya Voina, of Western hybrid warfare, that he was knowingly or unknowingly maybe as a patsy, but anyway, one way or the other, he was essentially an instrument of Western subversion. And this is such a powerful narrative, as I said, within the Kremlin. I mean, look, they, they push it out. And in fact, I will be talking in the second part of this uh, podcast uh, about a, a particularly um, splendidly uh, lunatic interview with Nikolai Patrushev, the Secretary of the Security Council, in which he sort of alludes to this. But obviously this, this is a narrative that one sees being pushed out to the mass Russian public. Not, I get, the sense of with any particular degree of success. And it's a clearly a useful, if it works, instrumental one to try and say, no, 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 this, this is not just simply, um, you know, honest opposition. This is actually a case of people trying to manipulate Russians to bring down their regime because that's what the evil West wants. The thing is, though, and I think what makes this so dangerous and so pernicious, and I've referred to this already, is the extent to which I honestly believe that probably Putin, though it's much, much harder to know exactly what he thinks, but certainly the key figures around him have come to actually believe this, or indeed believed it before. And therefore, this is really something that is not just simply a, a handy line to justify repressions. This is actually the cause of repressions. 
I mean, from their point of view, this is this is a you know a long-running campaign. Go back to you know whether it's a probably the Balotnaya protest, the protest that took place in 2011, 2012, that they seem to believe were actually orchestrated by the Americans, and that Hillary Clinton had basically lit the blue touch paper. Then, of course, the Euromaidan in Ukraine in 2013, 2014 which of course could not just simply have been a Ukrainian popularizing, but no, had to be you know, arranged from without. Now Belarus, it, it is as if the West is coming to get them and they have to push back. So I think that, that is one of the key things. It is this sense of actually what we are facing is a subversive and alien, shall we say, organization and structure and campaign, and we need to deal with it now. Now, the other reason why now is because of the way that Navalny was increasingly becoming, I'm not sure really what the best metaphor is, not figurehead, I think of him more as a lightning rod, um, to which all the various energies of the general dissatisfaction within the country could sort of come, come together. This is the issue of what I've called the, the, the coalition of the fed up, the Koalitia Zadolbanich, and... You know, it's it's a genuine concern if you're in the Kremlin, because this is it. There are a lot of people now who are not very happy with the status quo, and they have pretty good reason to. I mean, it's quite interesting that they held back these statistics on the, the state of the nation's economies until after Putin's recent address to the Federal Assembly, you know, and, and with pretty good reason. I mean, it, it does not at all show a pretty picture. 3.6% decline in real disposable income just in the first quarter of 2021. And therefore, as a result, Russians are not only burning through their own savings, they're also racking up personal loans. Again, a record level, 308,000 rubles per person. Generally speaking, there's pressure on housing. There's pressure on the medical services well over and above what you'd expect anyway because of COVID. There's increasing anger, for example, at the extent to which actually you know, public housing, housing has not yet been connected to the gas network. And there was evidence of that in a particularly splendid uh, little video clip that went viral of a pensioner haranguing Duma Speaker Valodin as a result of that. Never, ever, ever tangle with a Russian grandmother is the obvious answer. And the thing is that Navalny, not just simply for himself, it wasn't just because of his charisma, it wasn't even because he had policies that appealed to them. But as we saw with the, the protests that, that took place on his arrest, Navalny in some ways was giving permissions, shall we say, for people to come out and protest, for people to come out and basically simply say, we are fed up, we have had enough. They don't necessarily actually have any particular positive feelings towards Navalny. They certainly don't think he necessarily had the answers to their problems. But nonetheless, they just wanted to make those problems known. And look, it's always better to keep unhappy people atomized. You don't want them to begin to become feeling like they're part of some grand movement. You don't want them to realize how many other people in their town, in their neighborhood, in their country, share their feelings. So again, I think one of the reasons why Navalny had to be put out of the picture was precisely to stop him bringing together this coalition of the fed up. And the third element is, in some ways, I think the, the most marginal, but nonetheless, I think it was significant. It was his smart voting programme. This idea where you basically encourage people in the September parliamentary elections to vote for whoever is most likely to unseat the Kremlin's United Russia candidate. doesn't matter if they're communists, if they're ultranationalists, if they're independents, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just vote for that because protest voting is all you can really do when the political system is essentially a farce. I mean, on one level, it, it, it seems to go against the grain. You know, why on earth, if I'm not happy with the Kremlin's United Russia candidate, would I vote for an ultranationalist liberal democrat who basically is you know, Kremlin plus. But the answer is precisely to show, and again, we're back to this kind of coalition, the fed up stuff, it's to show dissatisfaction with, with the status quo. And this is something that uh, the Kremlin did seem to be worried about. I mean, I honestly have no idea if they should have been worried, but that doesn't matter because they didn't ask me. 
So, you know, they, they were worried, and I imagine it was probably heightened by the opinion polling from the Federal Protection Service, the FSO, which, by all accounts, tends to veer towards the alarmist. And it was already beginning to have a distorting effect on other politics, particularly, for example, if one looks at what was going on within the Communist Party, which, let's be honest, probably would stand as you know, one, one of the big beneficiaries of smart voting. Now, their superannuated and super supine leader, Zyuganov, interestingly, was clearly in something of a quandary, and he was having to balance on the one hand, an unusual new level of criticism of the government. You know, he's used to being the fake opposition leader who, who grumbles like, like your sort of disapproving old uncle. But whenever it actually comes to anything serious, he and his party will back the government. Um, but actually, no, he's, you know, again, having been forced into taking a much more kind of critical tone, almost as if, my word, a, an opposition party should be there to oppose. At the same time, though, he obviously didn't want to go too far, and although he recognised that there were people within the Communist Party who actually felt sympathy for and even supported what Navalny was doing, he was warning them that they shouldn't be saying so, even though they wouldn't be expelled as a result. So he's trying to balance. He can't just totally sort of toe the Kremlin line, or he loses the capacity to basically control many people within his own party. So he has to at least, once again, pretend to be an opposition figure, even while he does his best to manage that face, fake opposition. And, you know, that's several months out. You know, who knows how things would have got closer to the elections? And that's, you know, also throwing a question of actually how long Zugano would have remained in, in office. So I think for all these reasons, Navalny was a problem. But as I say, I think it's the first one. It's this belief that he's somehow an enemy or of Russia, a traitor, an instrument of the West, which is what pushed them over that particular line. The rest they could have tried to deal with in all kinds of other ways. One can think of much, much less substantive policy options. But I mean, this is something that I, I talk about in a piece in the Moscow Times that came out today, which is uh, 1st of May. Um, in some ways, I mean, I, I call this post-postmodern authoritarianism, um, which is also known as good old-fashioned authoritarianism, um, in that, you know, the, the old approach had been much more that you use, you know, a little bit of suasion, a little bit of sweeteners, and above all, control of the narrative, and just basically trying to keep people in the, of the mindset that actually, even if things aren't good now, any change would be for the worse. And you try and you rely on that instead of violence, fear, and repression. Well, obviously, the they decided that actually violence, fear and repression was, was necessary in this circumstance. That was a major shift. And the trouble is that you, once you've made that shift, once you've made that decision, it has its own logic that drives further policy. Repression upon repression. Repression demands further repression precisely because it forces other people into making existential questions about what they believe they have to do. Most people probably, unfortunately, for the moment, will just settle back and think, whoops, things got a bit too dangerous. No, I'm going to sort of, I'm not going to go out and protest in the future. I'm not going to sign up on any websites, you know, saying that, yes, I'd be willing to protest or anything like that. But there are going to be some people who are not willing to knuckle down and they themselves get, get driven into more extreme positions that obviously need to be addressed with more extreme measures by the state. It's interesting because this generation of senior Siloviki, senior members of the security and intelligence and generally force-bearing agencies, they are in many ways the products of the Andropov generation. Yuri Andropov, who was the head of the KGB before his very, very brief and largely hospital-bedridden period as general secretary, and this is a man who believed in turning repression from wholesale to bespoke, who believed in using methods such as psychiatric hospitals rather than gulags, but above all, who believed in essentially trying to get the maximum amount of behavioural change with the minimum amount of actual violence. And look, either they had totally gone against that, or else, and this is my suspicion, 
they genuinely believe, and again, look, I don't know if they're right or wrong, but I think they genuinely believe that there was the risk of some kind of Belarus scenario, some kind of truly massive situation in which basically the state is having to fight against the public. And so from their point of view, they are trying to avert that. They're thinking, shall we say, a medium amount of repression now will forestall the need for a massive amount of repression in the future. So, you know, this is the only way I think I can square that circle of Andropovians who have now turned to this kind of heavy-handed methods. It's because they think that there is even worse to come. But this is, frankly, a point of no return. There can be modulation in how much repression they use in the future, sometimes a bit more, sometimes a bit less, sometimes relying more on threats, sometimes relying more on actual arrests and having people's heads cracked. But the point is you can't go back to the old method of essentially presenting yourself as a democratic state, running a pseudo-political structure and hoping that people can just be satisfied with the prospect of you know, maybe some small improvement in the quality of their life, but above all, the thought that things could get that much worse. This is it. And look, in this respect, I, I am still, I'm still going to cling to my optimism about the long-term future of Russia. I, you know, I do believe that Putinism is a transitional period. And as Putinism comes closer and closer to, to, you know, towards its end, it's likely to get more violent, more unpleasant, more extreme, more heavy-handed, more clumsy, and perhaps most of all, more unable truly to understand, let alone sympathise with, the mood of its own country. So, you know, this is something that, that, that we, we should expect. Um, you know, and it's a kind of perverse uh, example of actually what was old Soviet doctrine about the, the intensification of the class struggle, the closer you get to genuine revolution. Well, you know, much as I have little sympathy for anything that the Marxist-Leninists came up with in, in, in their doctrinal expos expositions, I think in this they got it right, that as regimes feel that the cold fingers of mortality beginning to reach for them, they will get much more extreme. So, if one really wants to grab some small, flimsy little shred of silver lining from these very, very dark clouds at the moment, it is that, again, it probably does signal that uh, shift towards an even more decaying form of late Putinism. But then again, I would say that anyway. But let me end this segment just by raising three particular kind of issues that I think is worth thinking about for the future. First of all, does this mean some kind of particular shift in power within the system? And in particular, away from the presidential administration that up to now really has been the, the hub of power, obviously beneath Putin, um, within this system. If you look at the head of the presidential administration, Anton Vino, and his, his first deputy and general domestic political overseer, Sergei Kirienko. You know, these are not bloody-handed despot types. These are actually, again, your you know, rather tedious technocrats and political techni technologists. So, you know, basically, have they been edged out? Are they now being relegated to the role of just simply being functionaries? In some ways, they're kind of the political equivalents of Mishust, Prime Minister Mishustin's cabinet and the institutional state managers? Well, we'll have to wait and see. But of course, the question is, obviously, it'd be easy to look at things like, say, the Security Council as perhaps a new hub of power. I'm not convinced I could go that far yet. Maybe it's just simply that we have a further shift back to individual rather than institutional power. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. But that's something that I do really do want to look at because, you know, although obviously ultimate power in this system is individual, the execution of that power has to be through institutions. So we're going to have to see if there's going to be a shift in that. Secondly, look, the, the coalition of the Fed Up is not going to go away. It's going to be there. And if it's not going to be Navalny who is the lightning rod, well, 
who will? I mean, I think this is going to be one of the real challenges for the, the, the Kremlin in the future. Is you know there is all this dissatisfaction swirling round. Now they had this dream that at some point they being the Kremlin, at some point the national projects and other th- other sort of attempts to to modernise the system and genuinely improve the economy and thus people's quality of life will begin to to uh, bear fruit. I honestly can't see that as being likely to happen soon. Yes, look, the, I'm sure the economy will will bounce back in in post COVID times. I don't think, though, that will immediately lead to an improvement in people's quality of life, though. Once again, we see that trickle-down economics does not work. Um, This is essentially about macroeconomics rather than, shall I say, the microeconomics of of ordinary people's day-to-day lives. So it means that this coalition is there up for grabs. Now, who knows, maybe one of the uh, systemic opposition parties will will be able to, to get more votes that way. But who knows who else might come along tomorrow or the day after tomorrow to appeal to that? Some kind of you know, new Navalnyite, some kind of other liberal figure, or indeed some kind of very illiberal figure. We don't know, but again, I think this is why I think the Kremlin might well discover that it's made a major mistake by removing Navalny, who was at least a known quantity, because it leaves the, the uh, political field open for unknown quantities. Again, something to watch. And the final question is, look, can Navalny's movement operate in the new environment? I mean, can they, for example, work abroad? Quite a few of their key members already have done so. They could do some some things. They could obviously continue various investigations and, and run their videos. Though, to be honest, the videos I've seen that aren't being fronted by Navalny have generally not been of anything like as compelling a quality. Uh, They could certainly do something with smart voting from abroad, you know, having a website that basically say, if you're in this constituency, this is who we recommend and so forth. But I think it it is going to be difficult. And in part, that's because, let's, let's be clear about this. Navalny was a very commanding and charismatic figure, and he was very comfortable with being the the central figure of his political movement. And therefore, with him gone, and in effect he is gone, for the moment at least, there is this Navalny-shaped hole at the heart of it. And so far at least, we're not really seeing anyone or anyone's able to, to fill that hole. So it's not just about the fact that they're abroad. It is about the fact that you know they're having trouble coping to a, you know, with the post-Navalny experience. And perhaps more to the point, in a way, we're, we're seeing a shift. We're seeing a shift from a time when it was possible to actually run an opposition movement, an opposition political movement within Russia. And instead, in some ways, this is a return to older Soviet traditions of dissidents, of individuals making moral stands, of individuals creating little ad hoc groupings of like-minded people, sharing information. Of course, it's a hell of a lot easier nowadays. You don't have to sort of hand copy out your samizdat. There's social media, there's all kinds of, of other institutions, but still the scope for actually creating big, true national, or even, frankly, regional organizations, it's going to be much, much more limited. I think the FSB and the other agents of the state are going to make be sure of that. So, you know, again... I'm not convinced that, unfortunately, the Navalny movement will be able to survive this. Well, I hope I'm, I sincerely hope I'm wrong. But again, all of that, we'll just have to see. And when I'm ending on a whole succession of we'll have to sees, that implies that it's time for a break. And then let's come back to, once again, as I said, my man, Patrushev. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. Well, welcome back. So the next question that I wanted to address a little bit more more briefly from one of my patrons is this. Quite simply, does Patrushev really believe all the things he says? 
Well, first of all, let's talk about what is it that he says. And I think for this, I would love to, I have no, frankly, I have no recourse, but to look at a lengthy interview he gave to the newspaper Argumenti e Facti that came out on the 30th of August. And as usual, I'll leave links to articles I reference in the programme notes. And and this is an extensive one, and uh, it's it's really quintessential Nikolai Platonovich. Um, he starts talking about uh, Afghanistan, or he's asked about Afghanistan, and you know it is clear that there is a degree not just of the op- using the opportunity to castigate the Americans for both going into Afghanistan and indeed coming out of Afghanistan but a scarcely disguised satisfaction about it. I mean, he says it was the Americans who started all this, this game, as he calls it, uh, particularly by, by arming the Taliban, uh, as if the Russians have never armed any forces that then later on become problems. And, you know, how do they do that? Well, and the bargaining chip for them is, alas, the lives of the civilian population suffering from continued terrorist activity and poor socio-economic situations. You see, what he's trying to basically do is blame the Americans for everything. Now, look, I am not at all going to defend what's been going on in Afghanistan. I think it was actually a rather foolish decision to go in. I mean, for God's sake, how many ex- examples of failed imperial intervention into Afghanistan does there have to be before people get, begin to get the idea that maybe it is not a good idea? But anyway, although one can easily point to all kinds of American missteps, apart from the fact that, you know, coming from Moscow, critiques of, of, of Afghan policy do, do come a, a, a little bit hard. Um, but nonetheless, the key thing he's clearly doing is trying to essentially present the Americans as regarding Afghanistan purely as some kind of wider geopolitical pawn in, 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 in wider conflicts. And obviously with, with, with Russia being... The, the, the objective. Now, look, there is, it is clearly the case that America did not give any real thought to Russia when it went into Afghanistan, except insofar as how it could secure transport, transit routes for supplies and so forth through or, or over Russia. Um, you know, it is not about Russia. Not everything is about Russia. I mean, I often get frustrated with America, I'll, I'll be honest, and which, again, tends to assume that everything is about itself. But it's at least America is indeed a superpower. This notion of everything somehow being an an evil campaign against Russia, very, very striking, very prevalent, very destructive and very, very Patrushev. But anyway, he continues on. It gets much, much better. He continues on. He's asked about whether or not America could be called a democracy. And look, this is a a long, long little diatribe. I, I, I have to quote a fair chunk of it, but. This will only be just part of it. Democratic countries do not engage in blackmail and threats against other sovereign states, do not interfere in their internal affairs. They do not violate international law, do not use military force and economic sanctions bypassing the United Nations. They do not violate human rights and do not restrict freedom of speech on their territory and abroad. They do not try to use racism of every stripe to solve their internal problems and also do not lure extremists and terrorists over to their side for geopolitical purposes. And as I said, and, and it continues in that vein until the point where he presumably had to stop to, to wipe away the froth. Now, first of all, I mean, let's just stop and note with a certain degree of wry irony or indeed disappointment um, the, the the fact that he has just described things that Russia is incontrovertibly currently involved in. Democratic countries do not involve, engage in blackmail, having just mobilised your troops on the border of Ukraine and threats against other sovereign states. Do not interfere in their internal affairs. Of course not. What, what, what's going on in the Donbass is merely a little sort of bit of light-hearted banter with Kalashnikovs. They do not violate human rights, he says, while at the moment Navalny's movement is being classed as being next best thing to Al-Qaeda and, and so forth. Now, again, you know, in part, this is just simply the, the usual kind of 
rhetoric that is trotted out in, in, the, in the more extreme Russian official narratives. Oh, God, I'm using the word narratives a lot today. I do apologise. Um, but on uh, the other hand, it, it is also fascinating because when we bring it back to this notion of Western Gibridneo Voina, it tells us something about the extent to which he genuinely believes that the West... And let's be honest, when we talk about the West, that means America and its kind of hangers-on and proxies, because that's what all the rest of us, of course, are. You know, are engaged in, in this, this vicious, covert, subversive campaign to basically reshape the world and reshape other polities in ways that, that, that are to their slash our convenience. But it also says something about precisely what he regards as the capabilities of, of the West. Because at the same time, you know, he, he tries to decry any notion that America is ever the target of Russian political subversion or interference. I mean, he's asked, you know, did Russia undermine American democracy? And what he replies is, we don't need to. They, the American elite themselves, undermine the statehood of their country. And, you know, on he goes and we get the usual tropes. We get the Soros Foundation we get Russophobia and such like. I mean, this is in many ways a, a masterclass in the sort of the more distilled version of, of Russian propaganda. But then, ah, oh, but then Nikolai Platonovich, the gift that keeps giving, he then comes to Ivan the Terrible. Ivan Grozny, who, as he puts it, for some reason is called the Terrible in Russia, in, in the West. Well, because Grozny means, amongst other things, terrible. I mean, it also means awesome and such like. And he goes on, the black legend about him being a cruel tyrant was apparently created by Western chroniclers at the time. And why? Well, because they were trying to direct the attention, divert the attention of Europeans from what was happening in their own countries, you know, that's the Spanish Inquisition, the evil colonial enslavement of people, etc. I mean, this is astonishingly, and for me, astonishingly wonderful. Um, you know, he is taking Ivan the Terrible, this, this absolutely incontrovertibly murderous despot, who admittedly started as a state builder, but ended very, very much as a state breaker. You know, who actually sort of literally cut his country into two parts for a while and allowed his personal retainers to freely plunder and ravage across the West. But no, this is all nonsense. This is all part of the black legend that is created by, you know, even then, 17th century Western propagandists, presumably, in order to, to distract the attention of their own people from all the iniquitous things that the West was doing. You know, I mean, talk about attempting to, to rewrite the past in the name of the present, but to do so in such a ridiculous kind of way. I mean, honestly, there are all kinds of places in, in Russian history where there is ample room for nuance and reinterpretation. Saying that Ivan the Terrible was not actually that terrible a guy, that's a lot harder to, to push. So what does all this mean? This is barking mad stuff, let's be honest. But Patrushev is absolutely not a fool, quite the opposite. In some ways, it would be so much easier if he was. If he was like some of the kind of hurrah chorus you get inside the State Duma or Federation Council. You know, I mean, there are clearly a lot of people who are just very, very, very stupid. Patrushev, alas, is not one of them. So look, either he believes this stuff or... He is so committed to playing that role, the role of someone who believes this kind of stuff, with such a passion as to make a, a Stanislavskian method actor quite awestruck that it doesn't really matter. I mean, after a certain point, if you really immerse yourself in this, then in a way, whether, whether you're, you're, you're being a, a cynic or committed is irrelevant. And we have to remember, Patrushev is, in effect, Putin's national security advisor. He is, well, probably we could call him his henchman-in-chief, if not that one of them. He's the person who has the probably the greatest role, certainly in, in painting the picture of the outside world, to Putin. And clearly, you know, as we see, 
perceptions of the outside world very, very heavily shape perceptions of the domestic situation. So this really matters. And the only other sort of thing I, I would add that this demonstrates is that if need be, and, and let's be honest, I mean, there, there's this controversy as to whether or not a new law would allow Patrushev to stay on past the age of 70. And he's 69 at the moment. Um, so he might have to retire. And if so, I mean, I think we can be absolutely clear that a splendid and glittering career on Fox News awaits. But anyway, enough about Patrushev. Let's move on to a little more, a few quickfire questions, which I'll try and deal with a little bit more, more briefly. Why, I was asked, is General Andrei Averyanov, the head of GRU, Military Intelligence's now notorious Unit 29155, personally get involved in the operations in the Czech Republic back in 2014 that led to, as I've discussed in previous podcasts, the explosions and fires at Vrbjetitsia, which led to two people being killed. Um, and it is, it is rare. I mean, this, this, this you know, General Averyanov um, is very senior figure with, within GRU. Uh, he has you know, direct reporting to the head of the agency, he very clearly a hard-nosed ex-Spetsnaz special forces operator who'd been involved in basically every single war that the Russians had fought in since well, the Soviet war in Afghanistan. And this is not the sort of person who you'd expect to see you know, in an operation, especially not on kind of foreign soil where he could conceivably have been arrested. Though in fiendish cunning, he was actually going with uh, fake documents by the name of Overyanov. Well, who would have thought? Who would have made the connection there? Though in some ways, though, those were innocent times before the days of Bellingcat revelations and so forth. Well, look, I mean, obviously, on one level, I don't know for certain. However, my suspicion is that it confirms that really 2014 is when... The GRU and generally the Russian intelligence services were let off the leash. This is, after all, right after Euromaidan. And I do believe that that was the pivotal moment when, when as far as they're concerned, the CIA, MI6, whoever, Soros, no doubt, was involved in trying to steal Ukraine away from Russia's sphere of influence to their own. And that's the point when the decision was made. Look, clearly, we are in a political war and, and we need to fight it, whatever. Because before then, we had seen the GRU, and presumably actually this particular unit, 29155, being involved in um, wet work operations, lethal operations abroad. But quite rarely and quite specific, you know, with key targets. Generally speaking, what we would think of as, honestly, probably legitimate military targets. So the classic example, Zelim Khan Yandarbiev, who was the Chechen rebel president in exile, who was in Qatar in 2004 when the GRU basically planted a bomb on his car and flipped his SUV and you know, killed him in no uncertain manner. You know, that's, that's the sort of the, the, the main figure. I mean, in some ways, it's, a, it's a not a direct uh, analogy, but actually, in some ways, Yandar Biev was there bin Laden. So, you know, without saying whether it was a, a morally justified thing, I can understand where they're coming from. But it's really from, you know, now we know it's really from 2014 that we have seen this campaign of attempted killings, of real killings, of explosions and such like. And my suspicion is that Averyanov was involved in the Vrbjetice operation because it was the first one because they didn't yet have, shall we say, operational practices. They probably w w were scrambling to get this together in, you know, in, in a rush, given that the, sort of the uh, undeclared war in the Donbass had, had only recently started. And you know, they, they were trying clearly to strangle the supply lines that were bringing new munitions to the Ukrainians. So that is, in my opinion, why Everyanov was involved in that operation in a way that he has not been involved in any subsequent ones as, as near as we can tell. It's because he was supervising the first, shall we say, the first skirmish in this new political war, which really confirms that actually this has been going on for, for seven years. Next question, also sort of with, with, with a certain sort of spooky dimension. Is Hungary Russia's proxy in the European Union? 
And my view is that I have to say no. With a certain degree of reluctance, because quite frankly, putting the boot into Viktor Orban always seems like, like a, a good idea. But I think we have to realise that this is not the case that Orban's Hungary is just some kind of uh, lack-witted victim of, of Russian influence. Orban is a, a cunning, ruthless and entirely self-interested operator. And he knows that he can use Russia often as a, a lever against the rest of the European Union. Don't push me, he can say. Don't complain too much or don't, let's say, turn your complaints into actions against Hungary. Because if need be, I could always turn more to the Russians. The Russians will happily provide him with whatever else he needs, whether it's Sputnik V vaccine when he can't get through, through other means or whatever. But the point is, he is never going to let that get in the way of his own interests. And in some ways, we, we can see this also in, in the intelligence sphere. Now, here's the interesting thing, um, where at a time when the other uh, nations of the so-called V4 group um, have been expelling Russian spies, um, you know, um, uh, and indeed, as indeed have others, such as the Balts and the Romanians, particularly in the uh, aftermath to the Czech-Russian undiplomatic diplomatic spat, the Hungarians haven't. They did kick one person out um, in the uh, mass expulsions that, f that followed the Salisbury poisoning of, of, of Skripal. But generally speaking, they don't do these kind of high-profile expulsions, which has led many people to think, oh, that they don't mind their, being, their country being used for, intelligence, for Russian intelligence operations. Uh, but that's not quite the case. The Hungarian counterintelligence apparatus, particularly AH, which is the standard uh, civilian counterintelligence, and the KNBSZ, I think. Um, Hungarian is a, is a language that is opaque to me, which is military counterintelligence, you know, actually are really quite uh, assiduous in watching and foiling Russian operations within Hungary. And in fact, there actually are a lot of expulsions. In, for example, 2010 to 2016, there were either 10 or 11. But the point is, these are quiet expulsions. These are not the big, high-profile um, you know, media events. Someone is made persona non grata and, and they have 48 hours to get out. No, this is all about just a quiet word that maybe that particular second, sec second secretary... Uh, cultural or that particular junior defence attaché has gone a little bit too far and it's time they were hurriedly recalled. And, you know, so you have a, a diplomat and his or conceivably her family, you know, packing their bags, but there's no public dishonour. There's no big deal. And frankly, the Russians are perfectly happy to kind of accept that as a price of, again, keeping a positive relationship with, with Budapest. What the Hungarians don't bother, shall we say, policing, is the activities of Russian agents in Hungary outside its borders. And again, courtesy of the Schengen Agreement, just as, for example, we heard that uh, a lot of the Russian spies in Prague were actually operating outside of Czech territory. So too, I mean, it is clear that Hungary had been used as something of a hub for operations uh, elsewhere. Obviously, if you are a spy operating under diplomatic cover and you're doing something in another country, the country that you're not assigned to, you do not have diplomatic immunity. But the point is, there's lots of intelligence support work that isn't of the sort that's going to get you arrested and, and potentially expelled or whatever. You know, acting as a, a courier, doing some minor surveillance work, all kinds of other sort of backup stuff. And I think this is it. So what has happened is, is, is Budapest also is used to provide this kind of assistance to, to other places. And frankly, <sighs> Hungarians don't care. As long as they're not spying on Hungarians, they don't care. So I think this, this is, you know, obviously I, I focus in on the spies because that's the sort of thing that interests me. But in many ways, I think this becomes uh, a metaphor for, for the wider relationship. Essentially, Orban's Hungary 
will happily um, make a point of supporting the Russians against the European Union in terms of sort of you know, vetoing some measures and so forth, when it's to its convenience, when it's a way of actually demonstrating its power, its independence. It's not doing it for the, for the sake of the Russians, it's doing it for the sake of Viktor Orban to allow him to present himself as a sort of a, uh, a free-thinking um, maverick leader. In this respect, he is not like Czech Republic's President Zeman, who is very much, uh, I think, a kind of an ideological fellow traveller of the Russians. Actually, if I'm going to draw a parallel, it would be with Turkey's Erdogan, for whom, you know, again, Russia is, is an enemy, and it's also sometimes an ally of convenience, but it's always on your own terms. So is Hungary Russia's proxy in the European Union? No but with the little asterisk that says, except when it chooses to be, except when it is only in its interests, and only insofar as it is in its own interests. Very, very last one, very, very quick one. Question was put in, um, does it make sense for the United States to have stopped issuing visas in Russia? Now, this is a response to the fact that the Russians, again, with, with purely sort of spiteful intent, uh, have said that embassies of countries which are deemed hostile, and obviously the United States is one of those, are not allowed to hire Russians to, you know, for various uh, you know, purposes. And, and what happens is actually locally engaged staff do a lot of the admin work in a lot of, well, pretty all, all Western embassies. And in response to that, um, and in response to the fact that obviously that does put a huge additional sort of administrative burden on those remaining uh, American diplomatic personnel, they're not going to be issuing uh, visas in, in almost every case. I think this is a dramatic mistake. The point is that in some ways it's actually responding to Putin's malice by giving him what he wants. The fact of the matter is the West has considerable, huge amounts actually, of soft power. But it has to be able to demonstrate that it is a friend of the, of the Russian people. And giving people the chance to travel, it's not going to suddenly make them friends of the West necessarily. It's going to make them, though, much more aware of what the West really is. Look, the parallel I could draw is back when I was uh, head of history at, at Keele University in the UK... Kiel had a lot of exchange programs with various American universities. So, you know, a lot of our students, particularly ones doing American studies, but not just, um, would, would go off and spend a semester or a year in the United States, and then they'd come back. And what really struck me was, I mean, in some cases they came back very, very enthused, and why not? However, often they came back and they were still critical of America, as it has to be said, a lot of, you know, university-age Brits are going to be critical of the United States. But the thing is, that you might say, whereas beforehand they would often be critical of the United States, and really they were critical of, shall we say, uh, a simplistic, sophomoric caricature of the United States. At least when they came back, they were actually able to talk about the real United States. They, 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 they knew what it was, they knew what it wasn't, and they still would, would well have critiques about it, but there was critiques that were grounded in reality. Now, again, look, we're not going to suddenly turn loyal Russians into acolytes of the West, whatever the Patrushevs might think, simply by having them spend uh, a week or a fortnight or indeed a year in, in the West but at least they will not be, one hopes, prey to the more ridiculous propaganda that is put out about what sort of a country they are. You know, when, when they're told that, you know, European policy, gay-ropen policy is purely driven by a sort of cultural, transgender, etc. rights agenda, well, you know, actually come and visit and you'll see that yes I mean there, there are certain aspects of that around but by god it's by no means how you define European policy so from my point of view and this is something I've said before but I'm, I'm going to use it to once again leap upon my soapbox look if the problem and this is something that doesn't just apply to the Americans it also applies certainly to the Brits and I imagine probably to most Western European countries if you are finding it a problem dealing with all the necessary paperwork. Well, the answer is not to then stop people coming in. 
The answer is maybe make the paperwork less onerous. Actually, you know, give Russians visa-free access at least for a while. The Russians we need to worry about, the spies, the dirty money oligarchs and all these others, they come anyway. They come on forged documentation or on tier one investor visas or on passports that they've got from Greece or Israel or Cyprus or whatever. One way or the other, the ones we have to worry about come. It's the ones that we should want to come who actually have so much trouble. So let's, by all means, have student exchange programs. And even if the Russians don't want to take our students, fine, we'll do it one way. Let's, by all means, let in Russians who want to travel and see, you know, see what Europe is really like. Experience the Big Apple. Come and take a look at Oxford and Cambridge and think about you know, why their kids should, should want to go there rather than Mgeo or Ongimo in, 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 in Moscow. Let's let them in. If nothing else, if nothing else, that would certainly get up Putin's nose. And there is a point where sometimes that has a value in and of itself. And OK, and once we get to me advocating malice as a tool of statecraft, let's be honest, it's always been a tool of statecraft, it seems to be a suitable mo moment to end this slightly rambling, certainly self-indulgent and rather episodic episode of In Moscow Shadows. Thank you very much for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash In Moscow Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.